You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The hands were clustered about an oddly placed bulkhead towards the stern area of the hold, neglecting the work of cataloging the captured ship's stores. Sir, if you will step this way, Gibbs said. Make way there, he ordered, and the hands backed away from what Lawrence now saw was a doorway set inside a wall that had been built across the back of the hold, recently, for the lumber was markedly lighter than the surrounding planks. Ducking through the low door, he found himself in a small chamber with a strange appearance. The walls had been reinforced with actual metal, which must have added a great deal of unnecessary weight to the ship, and the floor was padded with old sailcloth. In addition, there was a small coal stove in the corner, though this was not presently in use. The only object stored within the room was a large crate, roughly the height of a man's waist and as wide, and this was made fast to the floor and walls by means of thick hawsers attached to metal rings. Lawrence could not help feeling the liveliest curiosity, and after a moment's struggle he yielded to it. Mr. Gibbs, I think we shall have a look inside, he said, stepping out of the way. The top of the crate was thoroughly nailed down, but eventually yielded to the many willing hands. They pried it off and lifted out the top layer of packing and many heads craned forward at the same time to see. No one spoke, and in silence Lawrence stared at the shining curve of eggshell rising out of the heaped straw. It was scarcely possible to believe. "'Pass the word for Mr. Pollitt,' he said at last. His voice sounded only a little strained. "'Mr. Riley, pray be sure those lashings are quite secure.' Riley did not immediately answer to busy staring. Then he jerked to attention and said hastily, "'Yes, sir,' and bent to check the bindings." Lawrence stepped closer and gazed down at the egg. There could hardly be any doubt as to its nature, though he could not say for sure from his own experience. The first amazement passing, he tentatively reached out and touched the surface very cautiously. It was smooth and hard to the touch. He withdrew almost at once, not wanting to risk doing it some harm. Mr. Pollitt came down into the hold in his awkward way, clinging to the latter edges with both hands and leaving bloody prints upon it. He was no kind of a sailor, having become a naval surgeon only at the late age of thirty, after some unspecified disappointments on land. He was nevertheless a genial man, well liked by the crew, even if his hand was not always the steadiest at the operating table. Yes, sir, he said, then saw the egg. Good Lord above. It is a dragon egg, then, Lawrence said. It required an effort to restrain the triumph in his voice. Oh, yes, indeed, Captain, the size alone shows that. Mr. Pollitt had wiped his hands on his apron and was already brushing more straw away from the top, trying to see the extent. My, it is quite hardened already. I wonder what they can have been thinking so far from land. This did not sound very promising. Naomi Novik is the author of the Temeraire series, His Majesty's Dragon, Throne of Jade, and the Black Powder War. Welcome to the program, Naomi. Thanks for having me. Naomi, I'd like you to set up the book for us. It takes place during the Napoleonic Wars, but not the Napoleonic Wars we know. No, that's right. The idea that I had, I'm a big fan of the Napoleonic era of Jane Austen and Patrick O'Brien, all those wonderful sort of swashbuckling tales and romantic tales. The concept of the Temerer books is basically the Napoleonic Wars with dragons. And what I wanted to do was sort of imagine how the Napoleonic Wars would have been fought out and, in fact, how the world might have changed if, for instance, dragons were real and an integrated part of the military at that time. So 
tell us a little bit about some of the characters. Your main character is he's not a really likable guy, kind of a, a twit as the as the novel begins. Well, Lawrence is very much and this was quite deliberate on my part, is very much a man of his time. He's he's a sort of very traditional man. He was raised in his father's nobleman. He was raised as a gentleman. He entered the navy and which was a very respectable gentleman's career him. He is doing well at the time of the at the time that His Majesty's Dragon opens. He's he's a successful naval captain. He has a romantic interest on land and his life is following a sort of kind of an ideal pattern really. He's sort of the the perfect gentleman and his life is is not ordinary. His life is actually quite good for someone of the time, of course, and he's very successful by the measures of the time. And I very much wanted a character like that, partly because that makes him that makes him a useful vehicle for sort of showing the changes in the world where dragons are introduced. Because, of course, he gets to see he has not been involved with dragons in his life. The aviators are sort of the separate, almost outcast, segregated society because nobody wants to live around dragons other than the people who have to because they're the dragon's handlers. So his introduction into the Society of the Aviators is an opportunity for me to show what somebody of that time period, how that how that kind of person would react basically being a complete fish out of water when dropped into this different different sort of caste in a way with his, within his own society. He has a really, I, I want to ask you about some of the research you did for the book, particularly about the, the social mores mm-hmm. that, that we see displayed. He's very stiff, very formal, at least as the novel begins, the series begins. And uh, as I say, he's not really likable. He's honorable, and we know that. Yes. But he, he's well, a stickler. I mean, to be honest, I, I have to admit that I do love Lawrence myself. Uh-huh. And I, I have a fondness for characters who, who, do, who, who accept their duty even when it's unpleasant to them personally. And I did want to... Um, make clear that this is somebody who is not, he's not so rigid that he can't adapt. And in fact, in many ways, I would say that that the uh, criticism could be validly leveled at Lawrence, that he adapts to the society of the aviators much more easily and much more quickly than realistically someone of his time period would have. In fact, I think it would be extremely hard and we don't even, it's, it's hard to imagine how difficult it really would be for someone who wasn't open-minded, who was raised and sort of inculcated with these the principles that Lawrence would have been fairly early on, to, to adjust to a much more sort of freewheeling society where the social strata were much more fluid, because it really was quite a rigid society. It was very rigid class-based society, uh, certainly gender, gender-based. And Lawrence really does end up, uh, Lawrence is not, Lawrence is not deliberately made exceptionally stiff, in, in other words, is what I'm trying to say, that mm-hmm. historically Lawrence is actually fairly, fairly adaptable for his time. Well, one of the joys of, of this novel is to see him change. Yes. In fact, one of the things I really like about your writing is you do a, a wonderful job of creating an emotional uh, landscape that, that guides the reader through and is really, really compelling. And I want to ask you about that. So tell us a little bit about how you manufactured this great emotional journey that you take the readers on. 
I do actually think that it's really critical in order to extract the most power out of both your emotional arc and your sort of plot arc to synchronize the two. That you really want uh, kind of the emotional highs and the uh, and the sort of plot highs to to sort of hit uh, when you can at the same time. That you really want sort of and the first book for me was very much the story of Lawrence Lawrence becoming an aviator is really the story of the first book and then the arc of the first three books taken in all is really for me kind of Lawrence's evolution and how Temeraire influences Lawrence, both emotionally and plot-wise. And I definitely have tried to keep that, keep that in mind throughout writing the... Tell us a little bit about writing historical fiction, because that's what this is. Mm-hmm. So do you include any real life or famous fictional characters? Do, does, does Lawrence meet somebody who's, whom we would know out of history? Or um, Lawrence actually meets m- many historical characters. I tend to like to use obscure ones. Basically, whenever Lawrence meets, for instance, Lawrence meets the first Lord of the Admiralty at the start of book two, Lord Barham. Lord Barham was a real person. He was, in fact, the first Lord of the Admiralty, and nobody knows about him except, you know, scholars, basically, uh, and people who have studied the period seriously, because he's not particularly famous. And I prefer to use characters like that, for partly for verisimilitude and partly because I feel that that adds, when I, when I force myself to stick to accurate historical detail, I think that that gives the book kind of a skeleton. That, that lives underneath and that even if the reader doesn't ever see the bones, they get the feeling that there's, there is sort of that scaffolding underneath that holds the book, that keeps the book in, in tune. And then I feel... But you I feel also like, have to change history too. Yes, yes. And I do that. But so I like to try and keep to historical detail except when I'm making a very conscious and deliberate change that I've, that I've really sort of planned out in advance and have really sort of thought about okay, what is this going to do to the universe as a whole? What is this going to do to my plot, not just for this current book, but in the future? And really kind of think about it in in a sort of very considered way, rather than just sort of doing it, rather than making up details as I go along, just because that's sort of more convenient at the time. I'm not, I'm not at all shy about changing historical facts or changing details when I think that that makes for the story, that makes the story better or changes the universe in some useful and important way. But I don't want to do it just sort of to make life easier on myself, if that makes sense. And I do, in fact, have Lawrence encounter some some more famous people. There is a meeting with Napoleon in the third book. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a meeting, but a sort of Lawrence gets to, gets to see Napoleon from a distance. But I do think it's important to keep that to a minimum. Uh, I think there's a sort of name-dropping effect that you get when you start dropping in very famous historical characters frequently into your own historical novels. Because the problem is Napoleon is the hero of any, not not the hero necessarily, but Napoleon is the center of any story he's in. I, I really don't think that you can tell a story about Napoleon where Napoleon is not the most important figure in it because he's so much larger than life. He's so recognized to the reader. The reader really knows Napoleon the second he walks on the stage, before he opens his mouth, before he does a single thing. And so I think it's it's important to be very cautious about how you use characters like that, characters who have an existence 
before the existence you give them in your own book. How far back have you created this history? And with how much detail did you create the history before you embarked upon writing the plot? Before I started writing the plot, basically none at all. I sat down to start writing this story. I was not initially planning for it necessarily to be a novel. I just started writing and I fell in love with the characters. And then I started thinking about the the universe. Uh, basically, my, my initial idea was a Napoleonic era captain finding a dragon egg and suddenly becoming the captain of a dragon. I thought that would just be tremendous fun. And then basically, you know, after I'd st sort of written maybe the first chapter, or even less, probably the first half of the first chapter, that's when I sort of stopped and went back and really kind of thought about what I was doing. And of course, ideas had been evolving during the process of writing. But for me, the characters are at the core. And then after that, I started thinking about it in detail before I went further, because I do think that first I needed to fall in love with the idea myself, and then I needed to work out how that idea could really work before I could build a, a sort of novel-length story around it. Now, you have a, a series with a lot of detail, a lot of action, a lot of plot, a lot of history. Some of it maps to real history. Some of it's invented history. How do you keep track of all that? Do you have a timeline, a database? Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Um, I have, I have uh, a very large spreadsheet now that has a timeline of the historical events, then the events I inserted and then the events that I have changed and how I've changed them. But then in addition, there are also things that I've thrown in. You asked me before how far back I've gone historically. Right, right. I, to um, I have really, I don't sort of like to, to flesh out too much detail before I actually go and write a story set in a particular sort of aspect of the, of the universe. Because for instance, I can very well see myself writing a story about you know how the first, first person in Rome first tamed a dragon, because there's a throwaway line in His Majesty's Dragon where I do say that the Romans were the first ones who domesticated dragons in Western Europe. And so I can imagine going back and wanting to write that story someday. And I don't want to sort of box myself in by by putting in too much detail or, or sort of necessarily locking myself down. So, but I, I have this general idea up until sort of the opening of the book. And then from the book is where I really start to change the history of the Napoleonic Wars in particular. I really sort of have consciously, I, I do think that this is something where I sort of hand wave and ask the reader to go with me, where I say that history hasn't changed very much up until the time of the Napoleonic Wars, even though, of course, realistically, if dragons had been part of this universe, everything would be different. You know, a dragon would have would have eaten Julius Caesar and, and you know, Rome never conquers Gaul and, and suddenly everything is different. And Shakespeare's plays are different, too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, so I do realize that that's that's something where I have to sort of ask the reader to to just say, let's just ignore that, pay no attention to the dragon behind the curtain, and and really kind of go with me because, of course, the fun I think is having the recognizable Napoleonic Wars with the dragons in it. If mm -hmm. I changed society so much that you couldn't recognize Regency era society, that you couldn't recognize some of the events and people, then it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a historical novel, obviously. It could still be a lot of fun, but but I think there's a special pleasure to historical novels. 
I'd like to ask you about some of your inspirations for mm-hmm. this novel. Were Were there any books that that you had read that you said, "Boy, I want to write something kind of like that," but it's gonna be? Uh... Oh yes, um, I I sort of like to think of the book. I think any sort of work of art really has has its own family tree, as it were. And the family tree of this book, uh, the God, the 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 grandparents are clearly, I think, Anne McCaffrey and Patrick O'Brien, whose whose books I both adore to pieces. And then there's sort of this larger crowd of antecedents, including Jane Austen's work, which was definitely inspiration for some of the some of the more social. There's a wonderful scene where Lawrence returns home. Yes. And, and it just reminded me of the most uncomfortable parts of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of a Jane Austen novel. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Which I, I love because, of course, Jane Austen's novels are about the, the Regency era and, in fact, the time of the Napoleonic Wars from the perspective of women and who, who were typically left behind and did not get to go out and have adventures and whose adventures were obviously constrained to the social sphere. And I wanted to to bring some of that in into these books, and also to have to have a combination of characters of, of female characters, because of course I I do have female captains mm-hmm. in my books, which was very important to me. And but I also wanted to have strong women of the period who were women of their time, who were not necessarily aviators themselves, but who were still women who could be respected and admired and who who were women of character even within the the historical constraints that they had at the time one of the things that strikes me you mentioned patrick o'brien patrick o'brien seems to have a a, a lot of people who read science fiction mm-hmm. and also really enjoy patrick o'brien yes. and i'm betting you're one of those people I am? and you can tell us a little bit about why he's so appealing to the speculative fiction world well i would say that in general, historical fiction and speculative fiction, good historical fiction, both do the same. Uh, one of the, the sort of biggest pleasures, deepest pleasures for me of both speculative fiction and historical fiction is world building. The idea that you take the reader and you show them this world that is not like the world we're in and that is different in fundamental ways. And Patrick O'Brien, like the best science fiction writers, is a genius at really showing you, at really sort of taking you into the world of the Napoleonic era, which honestly is as alien to us as would be as alien to to one of to a modern person as you know, life on Mars or <laughs> life on Mars, both both the series and the uh, and if you actually went to an alien planet and saw an alien civilization, it really would be you have the same sense of sort of culture shock. You have the same pleasure of discovering what about the world does not match up to your expectations of being surprised by the changes in the world. And uh, I do think that that Patrick O'Brien is an absolute master at doing that for the Napoleonic Wars. I think one of the things, too, and you do this quite well, is an accumulation of details. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about how you created some of the details that add up here. What's nice about your books is is that the details, some of them are clearly not (laughs) out of the, the 18th century that we know. Yes, that's right. I did, for instance, with the dragons. I, I very much was inspired by by Patrick O'Brien and by the idea of the way that the Navy behaved. Not just Patrick O'Brien, but C.S. Forrester, and also there's there's Bernard Cornwell's Sharp books, which have that have a crew, 
where you have, it's not just a captain and his ship, or even a captain and his first few officers in their ship. There's an entire crew of people who sort of operate the ship and work together. And there's as much sort of, not just, not necessarily political, but there's as much sort of personal life going on within the ship as in as within the battles. You know, it's not just here are the here's this sort of monolithic unit, a ship and its crew going to fight the enemy, and it's all about the interaction between the you know the crew and the enemy. It's very much about the relationships within the crew, and that forms a sort of community. And I really like that and wanted to have that for the dragons. And that's why the dragons in my books have have crews. It's not a single rider per dragon. The dragons are most of them quite large and are are manned by anything by you know from ten to thirty people in battle. And there's a big support crew. And one of the pleasures yes. of the of the novel is the interactions with the support crew, the the young men, the boys on the ground who mm-hmm. who help clean up the dragons. Yes. You yes. have a lot of fun with that. I <laughs> do. Do, do, you, um, do you ever work with kids or? No, actually, it's it was just that was just something that came out of my imagination, and and of course, realistically, historical historically, children were were working at this time. You know, there were people, there were children as young as as seven or so on board ships of the Royal Navy. Midshipmen would uh, midshipmen would go to sea at the age of twelve as officers. And would actually be giving orders to you know much older crewmen because of the social the social stratification of the time. So there wasn't a, there really wasn't a sense of children as children at the time in the same way that we have now. That really they were they were put to work they were put to apprenticeship very early on because that was that was how you learned your trade. Let's get to the good stuff. Okay. In a novel about dragons, you're going to have characters. Who are dragons, and dragons are important characters. You have a wonderful time with your, with your dragons. Yes. Tell us a little bit about them because they come, they come out of the eggs, smart. They're talking. Yes, I decided that what I wanted to do very much was have the dragons. The way that I envision it is that dragons are dragons are predators, and sort of thinking about it, you know, something that made sense to a layperson without without particular training in in uh, evolutionary biology or anything. It made sense to me that they would need to come out of the shell ready to fend for themselves, ready to to sort of hunt on their own, ready to survive on their own, so that they would end up doing a lot of development within the shell before they actually hatch, and that the parent dragons would actually protect and worry about eggs much more than they would worry about the dragon once it had hatched. That's a theme that, or rather that's an attitude that I, I think is important about for, for all the dragons. Um, that's sort of a core principle of dra- draconic behavior for me, for my dragons. And that because of that, they're, while they're within the shell, while they're still, while they're developing, they can actually hear through the shell and acquire language through the shell and in fact, my idea is that uh, most dragons, shortly after hatching, stop developing pretty quickly. They they grow very fast to their to their sort of adult size, and then they essentially stop and they lose, in fact, the ability to pick up languages. Unlike people who, you know, take a lot longer to learn how to speak, but most people can pick up a language if they have to, even later on in life. Whereas for dragons, that's much more difficult with, of course, a very special exception, which is Temeraire. One thing that I found interesting about your dragons is 
they're they're very different. Some of and they have very different abilities. Some of them are almost childlike, and Temeraire comes out. He he's uh, he's a very highly intelligent dragon and highly entertaining as yes. well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I very much wanted the different breeds of dragon and the different dra- dragon individuals to all be distinct. For instance. The way that some of these breeds were made, these breeds were very much bred deliberately by people who were breeding for particular characteristics. And, of course, part of the way that you do that is by inbreeding. So, for instance, I have the uh, Vali, who is, who is, I have to admit, one of my favorite dragons in the books, who is this little courier who has been bred to be extremely fast and have endurance so that he can stay up in the air for really long flights. And But he is not very bright. And in fact, that's, as I envisioned it, partly due to the fact that inbreeding was probably used in order to fix the traits that the, the breeders wanted. They wanted a very fast dragon. They wanted a, very, a, a dragon that could stay in the air for a long time, but he didn't really need to be all that smart. So, so that's what that kind of program has produced. At the time, these people are not thinking about the morality or the, the ethics of this uh, this kind of process. They're just doing it because they're practical and that's what they want. On the other hand, for instance, in China, you have breeders who have been trying to, and in fact, I mean, among the dragons themselves, who have privileged intelligence and, and an ability to learn, to, to maintain that ability to learn throughout the dragon's lifespan. And so in China, they've produced dragons who are who retain their intelligence, who retain their, their, not their intelligence, but who retain their ability to learn quickly throughout their lives. And Temeraire is, of course, a product of, of, uh, of that system. Some Usually when uh, an author creates dragons, they liken them to uh, an animal. Uh, Anne McCaffrey, for example, her dragons are, are rather like horses. She breeds horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your dragons like? Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Yes. You know, when I was little, I used to go to the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan, which at the time had this setup of of dinosaurs as these sort of enormous, they were sort of arranged in such a way that you really felt that you were looking up at this towering, deadly creature. And it wasn't scary, particularly. It was just enormously awe-inspiring. That's that's always stuck with me, um, that sense of sort of wonder, of 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 awe looking at these creatures who are are gone forever and and that's certainly been part of part of the inspiration but the other part was really very much feeling that i wanted the dragons to be to be people in their own right they are not to me they are they are aliens really they're they're the equivalent of aliens in the science fiction novel and inspired of course by all the mythology about dragons and all the previous stories about dragons but also just trying to create an alien intelligence, an intelligence that really sort of works from different base principles than people do, which is a lot of fun because every so often, I think, produces a lot of the the entertaining aspects of of Lawrence and Temeraire's relationship, because there are points throughout the book where they clearly are just coming at things from utterly different perspectives. Um, and part of that is, of course, just that Temeraire has not is still very young and has not grown up within this culture that Lawrence has, so he doesn't have um, sort of established societal expectations. 
but a lot of it is just sort of the base principles what that they that they see things completely differently and every once in a while Temerer will do something that Lawrence just completely doesn't understand or can't can't sort of work out the logic behind because dragon logic is not human logic one of the core aspects of a lot of drag novels that involve dragons is this bond between the human and the dragon. It's a really interesting aspect. I'd like you to tell me about how, what was your take on this? I mean, I think that's just sort of inherently fun. That's one of those uh, cases where it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a really good reason. Well, you can do a Um, lot of spins on it. Yes. Like a marriage with a chaste marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, I I very much wanted the 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 relationship between Lawrence and Temeraire to be one of choice. That it obviously the the initial sort of bonding because Lawrence doesn't want to be an aviator. There is an element of compulsion involved that he has to become an aviator because Temeraire has sort of bonded to him and is willing to speak to him. But it was important to me to move that from sort of an unthinking permanent relationship that could never potentially be changed to one that is very much something that they both choose and is something that changes both of them. And that was very important to me, to have that kind of, that kind of relationship between them. And, and yes, I definitely think that they are both the most important other being in each other's lives. And that... That's that is absolutely critical to me. That no matter you know if Lawrence did marry, if Temeraire did did take a permanent mate, they would still be the focal relationships of each other's lives, because I feel like that's so. So I think a chaste romance is not a bad way to describe it. Actually, this relationship, it really creates some interesting emotional opportunities. Because um, you can use the dragon's alien viewpoint to, to give some some interesting spin mm-hmm. back, uh, create some anachronistic effects, so that Temeraire's in his innocence occasionally spouts some very modern seeming independence, and you have a lot of fun with that. Don't yes, you? I really do. It's one of the one of the challenges in writing uh, historical fiction is deciding how how you want to make it palatable to the modern reader. Because, of course, I mean, historically this time, there was incredible racism and sexism and classism just rampant. You know, you can do a realistic, you can do a completely realistic portrayal of it. But to be honest, I think that makes it sometimes it makes it hard for modern characters, modern readers rather, to to love your characters the way. In fact, it makes it hard for me as as a writer to love my characters when they're that that far away from me, in a way. And so Temeraire was really, Temeraire's innocence, that's part of how Temeraire changes Lawrence. And it is fun to have a, a character who really can sort of be the modern voice, rather, within within the historical world, justifiably, rather than simply, you know, sort of rewriting all the personalities, all the, all the sort of more un-PC tendencies out of the era completely, which is done a lot of times by by a lot of historical novels, just because, of course, that makes it easier for the modern reader to get into that world 
at the same time, to me, if you do that, I feel you lose some of the essential character of the time period. You lose some of that world building that I was talking about before, which is which is part of the pleasure. And part of the, of course, with building a new world is that there are going to be parts of that new world that are not so pretty to look at. And I thought it was important to keep that, but I wanted a balance between keeping that and still being able to wholeheartedly just dive in and enjoy it. There's a little bit of uh, politics in here, the politics of the uh, 18th century and, of course, uh, current politics, because you're writing this in the modern world. And you have some interesting thoughts about, you know, the conflict between the importance of duty and, you know, the bond between the dragons and the riders makes them value one another more than perhaps their duty and to militarily. And there's some really great plot points where these two things butt right up against one another and somebody has to make an instant decision. So tell us a little bit about how you decided to create those conflicts and how you resolve them. Lois McMaster Bujold, I, I think, has said something like, uh, who's one of my one of my favorite writers, has said something like the way she comes up with her plots is she comes up with characters she loves and then thinks of the worst possible thing she could do to them. And so really, the hardest choice for Lawrence to make is a choice between what he feels is his duty, what he feels is his responsibility as a man of his time, as a gentleman and a man of honor, and his, his deep love for Temeraire and his duty to Temeraire as well. And so that's a very, I feel like that's a very satisfying kind of conflict. That's a very difficult place to put Lawrence. And I, I like putting him into it because that makes for that makes for a lot of a lot of fun and makes his life difficult, which I think makes for for an interesting book. Characters don't like to live in interesting times, but we like to read about them living in interesting times. When you write a book about dragons, you're using a powerful symbol that speaks to a lot of people directly. Yes. Why do you think? What do you think the appeal is of dragons in general? And how do you manifest it in your own fiction? I do think that dragons can represent different things. Obviously, you can have dragons that are terrifying, that are sort of this vast, enormous enemy that's almost the, the highest mountain you can climb. It's sort of the Everest of, of fantastical monsters. And at the same time, then when you take that and make it and, and make the dragon into an ally, it becomes, a, it still remains a symbol of enormous power and enormous freedom that, you know, when you think about it, especially before airplanes, of course, there was no, the idea of sort of being able to get on a dragon and fly through the air and see everything below you and, and have control over, over something so enormously powerful it is sort of inherently appealing on kind of a lizard brain level. The fun of that is playing with that in, in a novel is how do you then limit that power and what are the challenges of, of exercising that power? And of course, you know, especially with, you know, Lawrence is very much constrained by, by his society, by his own rules for himself, by his sense of his duty. And at the same time, he's suddenly been taken out of a position in which he was not constrained only by his sense of duty, but by other people. You know, he could be fired, uh, fired, of course. Uh, he could be um, dismissed from the service. He could be removed from command as a naval captain. 
And suddenly now he's an aviator with a dragon who is this enormous, fairly uncontrollable force. And in fact, his responsibility is to, in some ways to control this dragon and make it a part of the, you know, make it a smooth, well-oiled functioning part of the, the British military. And at the same time, the dragon is a person and someone that he cares about and has many sort of dangerous ideas that make it very difficult for Lawrence to play the role that his society expects him to play in controlling Temeraire as much as being Temeraire's ally. For the people of this time, clearly part of the reason that they're afraid of dragons in many ways is because they have a very thin illusion of control over these dragons. The dragons are enormously powerful. They really can do enormous amounts of damage. And what's worse is they're intelligent. Yes, exactly. They can choose to, you know, dragons are very much sort of being controlled by their riders, by their their captains and crews to be part of the society. And of course, one of the one of the themes of the first three books is how Temeraire, who is a, an exceptionally intelligent dragon, really starts realizing that, wait a second, some of these things aren't quite right and do not make inherent uh, sense and starts pushing um, at the societal boundaries around him. I'd like to ask about the research that you've done for these books and for, for upcoming books. How do, you, how do you research? Is this not reading nonfiction, reading fiction, traveling? Um, reading, uh, I feel like I've, I've sort of spent the first 30 years of my life doing the research by reading fiction. <laughs> I love dragons. I've loved them, you know, all my life and, and loved stories about dragons, all the legends from the, the Vavil dragon, the Polish legends of the Vavil dragon to, you know, Tolkien's Smog and uh, Anne McCaffrey's Pern novels and Ursula Le Guin's fantastic dragons. When I started sort of really doing research for these particular books, the first set of research for for His Majesty's Dragon, for the first book, was very much technical research. I had to research how ships worked. And I have still made some mistakes because it's enormously complicated stuff. And that was that was sort of the first challenge. And other than that, I do a lot of nonfiction reading. I try to read as many primary sources as I can. For instance, there's a wonderful anthology called Every Man Shall Do His Duty, which is an anthology of excerpts taken from the journals of many sailors and soldiers of the time, both the officers and a few of the actual hands, even. And that's wonderful because reading that kind of uh, first-person, immediate narrative set in the time gives you a flavor of it that I don't think you can capture by reading a, a history book. And then, of course, there's history books for, for sort of factual detail. But uh, but in terms of sort of establishing voices and really kind of trying to get a sense, a gut level sense of what it's like to live in that world, uh, I do find primary sources the most valuable and also the most fun to read in a lot of ways. And then I when I can, I like to travel to the locations where where I, I set the books. I uh, had the opportunity to visit Loch Lagan in Scotland, which is the site of the training grounds in His Majesty's Dragon and get a feeling for that landscape. And I think that being in a place like that, absorbing the atmosphere, sort of breathing the air, and then when you're standing in a place like that, you can really kind of imagine dragons into it 
more easily than I can sitting in my apartment in uh, on the tenth floor in Manhattan, and uh, and also visiting uh, sort of very different places. Um, I was able to go to Istanbul for Black Powder War, and in fact rewrote, a, basically put in an entire scene that hadn't been there before, and rewrote an entire section because, in fact, sorry to backtrack a little bit. What I what I actually like to do is, where possible, is write the book first, write the plot first, and then go and, in a way, kind of backfill sort of additional detail and additional atmosphere. Because I find that in a lot of ways, what that does is when I have the plot already worked out and written, then I go there and I look very specifically for things that are going to serve the plot. And then it becomes kind of a give and take between the plot and the the sense of atmosphere and detail that I've that I've collected, which I think is important because when I one temptation of doing research is that you start putting in too much research and not enough story. And I do think it's it's critical to remember that what people are reading my books for is Lawrence and Temeraire and the associated characters and their adventures. If they wanted to know about the details of Istanbul, they would read a book about Istanbul, as I highly recommend they do, because there are many fascinating, uh, fascinating ones. In a sense, one of the things I enjoy about this book, it, it's a science fiction novel, in, in that you're creating the technology of the 18th and 19th century in a science fictional manner, and, and you make a few... I think innovations, carab- carabiners, carabiners. Um, Were they? Did they exist back then, or did or did you have them create? You created? know, I um I am not sure when carabiners were actually uh, first invented. I feel that having to work with dragons, if they didn't exist, somebody would have to create them. So that's that's one historical detail that I did not, that I quite consciously did not check when, when carabiners were invented, because I felt that, that that's something that would absolutely be necessary for clambering around on a dragon's harness in mid-flight. Other things, other details that I have sort of shifted is that, for instance, the dragons have riflemen rather than uh, riflemen who use rifles rather than muskets, because rifles were more accurate and they weren't actually adopted by the British military until after the the time period that I'm working in. But I felt that you know anything that could give you a little more accuracy when you're firing guns in midair off a dragon's back, you're going to take it. <laughs> I imagine so. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your background. You started, some of your first uh, writing started out in the gaming world, didn't it? Yes. What I worked on before the Temeraire series was Neverwinter Nights, Shadows of Undertide. I got to work on the expansion set as both a programmer and a designer, which was, which was fun. And in fact, it was, it was interesting because I'd done, I've been writing fan fiction for years and years, and, but mostly at this sort of short vignette level, and purely for fun. Now, what kind of fan, who did, what fan fiction did you write? Who did you write for? Oh, I, something like 30 or something different, different universes. Um, I, I write, I've written, of course, I've written the obligatory Star Trek. Let's see, what else have I written? Burn? Uh, no, actually. Until recently, Anne McCaffrey did not allow fan fiction based on based on the Pern universe f- because of of concerns about about a possible movie deal I think uh, in fact I had a 
they were worried that it might affect the rights. But I mean, more and more people are getting much more relaxed about fan fiction, which I think is great, since you know J.K. Rowling has has authorized fan fiction on the Harry Potter books. And I, for instance, am, am thrilled if people want to write fan fiction about the Temeraire series. Because I really think that that shows that people really have fallen in love with your characters and your universe and, and want to come play too, which I think is, is sort of a, a seal of approval. But I'd really only been writing at this sort of very short vignette, um, vignette level. I'd never written anything long. And working, moving to a computer game where we had to create this story arc that would cover, that would provide 30 hours of gameplay. So you had to build this central arc with, with a central villain who would carry you through. And you had to sort of think about the architecture of it when working on a computer game because you had to split it off into pieces that different people could work on. So we, we created this sort of three-act structure um, with, you know, uh, designed kind of the climax and then sort of spun off a lot of side plots along the way for people to do. And the process of doing that was really kind of revelatory to me in terms of how you build the structure of a novel. I can imagine. Boy, that's interesting. Yeah. No, it was. And, and really, I mean, I feel that I was I was reasonably good at, at character pieces, at at uh, detail, uh, at sort of at that vignette level before I worked on the game. But I don't think I could have written a novel before I worked on on Undertide because I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that process of, of designing the architecture of a story, which in a way comes very much out of the process of building software architecture for me. So, so it's really those two passions of mine, programming and, and writing, do really, I feel, kind of feed off each other in that way. I like this idea that computer coding is in itself a form of literature and enhances your literary abilities. Could you talk to a little bit more about that? I, sure, sure. For myself, I do find that those two things go very, uh, go very much together. Uh, I do think those two things go very much together because it's really working with language in both cases. Obviously, a program is, is really a way for you to talk to the computer it's much more rigidly structured and it forces you in, into particular, into a much more limited dialect, as it were. But then the architecture of, of a program, when you start writing large programs, large pieces of code, large systems, you have to design it first. You really can't just sort of dive in and start, uh, start writing from, from A to B because otherwise you'll get halfway through and suddenly you'll discover that you need to do something that there's no way to kind of gracefully insert later on. The process of learning how to analyze what it is that you want to do beforehand and then think about the the structure, how to build kind of a, how to build a structure that can support having a lot of things hung off it along the way really is for me the the same process as kind of thinking about how to write a novel where there's one plot that goes all the way through um, because that's that's actually how I prefer to write a novel. I don't like to end with cliffhangers where the plot sort of just stops in the middle and the characters are, are dangling by their by their uh, fingernails um, and and you have to wait for the next book to get it. I like to to have a sort of fairly self-contained plot within a book and then the characters can go on and have another adventure afterwards. And I do think that overall you want you want elements and, and the sort of the history of the characters to continue. But I do like the idea of, of keeping each book self-contained. And then, so 
thinking about how to build an arc that contains the entire uh, of, of your plot and then fleshing it out along the way so it becomes, rather than sort of a, a very simple bear story, becomes elaborated and full-fleshed and has a lot of, of life and sort of side events going on at the same time is very much the same process as designing the, the architecture for a complex piece of software where you have one basic idea that you want, one, one sort of core principle that the function that the program's supposed to serve, and then you start fleshing it out and, and making it do all the other things and adding all the bells and whistles. Your language in this book is very gorgeous. It's, it's beautifully written. And, and it's kind of interesting. It's somewhat, you go back and forth a little bit between a, a rather mannered prose that, that you might expect to find had this novel been written contemporaneously <laughs> back in the 19th century. Thank you. That is, that is very flattering. Um, and, and a little bit more modern. So tell us a little bit how, how you modulate that and how did you study the language and, and create and edit the prose? Honestly, uh, that is something that I have not studied particularly. I've just read a great deal in the period. Um, I, I literally have read Jane uh, Pride and Prejudice, I think, um, more than twice a year, every year since I first read it at the age of 10. I love to reread things in particular. So, so uh, I, I do, I have read a lot of the literature of the period, enough that I sort of feel like I have an instinctive grasp of the idiom. And uh, I mean, sometimes that can betray you where uh, I've occasionally used words that somebody pointed out to me very hastily were, were actually anachronistic because I'm not really studying it so much as I am kind of feeling my way on a gut level. And, and so that's not, that isn't quite consciously studied. I really just sort of go with my gut on it and uh, have a lot of fun with it. You managed to write these three books in two years? Yes. That's pretty remarkable. And it, it's also <laughs> And I had to do it before I got to see the first one published, which was very painful. <laughs> now, why did you have to do it before you see it got the first one published? And I'm kind of surprised they popped them all out in one year. You know, Del Rey uh, when I when I sold the first book to Del Rey, they bought uh, the first question really that that Betsy Mitchell, my editor at Del Rey, asked uh, my agent Cynthia Manson was uh, we like it, and does she have ideas for more? And also wanted to know how quickly I could write and, and whether I could meet a deadline. I am able to write quite quickly, which is something that I'm very grateful for. I tend to write well when I write in sort of intense bursts. Basically, I spend you know three months locked at the computer doing nothing but writing all day and letting you know the, the laundry pile up and the and the dishes are in the sink and and uh, my email goes unanswered and and so forth but uh, and then I just sit fallow for for quite a while after that um, sort of recharging the creative batteries as it were but but I tend to write best in these sort of short intense bursts what Del Rey wanted to do was bring out all three books uh, in mass market together fairly close together in order to launch the series. And this is a technique that they've used in other genres. Random House has done it with thrillers and they've done it with romance novels. And they found that it's extremely effective at launching a new writer or a, a writer who's just had one or two books published and, and really kind of making them much more visible, both from uh, just, just to readers 
and also from a marketing perspective, uh, a business perspective. They get more shelf space in the bookstore. Bookstores notice them, the sales more. You get um, standees. Exactly. That kind of thing. You know, for myself, I, I really trust the Delray people to know what they're doing from a marketing standpoint. I and And when they said that they thought they would like to launch these books that way, I mean, frankly, on an intuitive level, it, it made a lot of sense to me. But also, I, I trusted that they sort of knew what they were doing, and I think they were absolutely right to do it. Uh, obviously, I, I would have loved to have hardcover versions over here, but uh, happily, the, um, the UK editions are in hardcover, so I got to have the best of both worlds. But of course, in order to bring all three books out one month after the other, I had to finish all three books before they, could, before they were even ready to publish the first one. Now, I, I'm gathering then that we can expect more. Uh, yes, and, I'm happy to say. Tell us a little bit. Can you tell us anything about where they go next um, or where you go next? Yes. So so uh, we've, we've currently agreed with Del Rey to do another three books. And I do have a sense of, of what's going to happen on the, on the large level in those three books. And I'm currently working on the fourth one, uh, the, fourth, the fourth of the series, of course, in which uh, I will say, this is not a huge spoiler, um, that they go to Africa which I have just actually finished visiting as part of my research for, for the book. And then the future books, I will just close my mouth and say nothing more, <laughs> because that would actually give some spoilers for events. Um, well, now, can you tell me, do you have a sense of this series having, it certainly clearly has a beginning, mm -hmm. do you have a sense of it having an end somewhere? Do you know what the end of the series is? I do know that the series would end with Napoleon's defeat. The question of, for me, that, that would sort of be, I would have to culminate with Napoleon's defeat because I feel as though if I ended with anything else, if I had Napoleon's defeat come and then let the series continue on, afterwards, so much would have been lost. So much of sort of the underlying conflict would be lost that it would become, it would become difficult for me to, uh, to re-envision it. At the same time, if I had the series end and Napoleon still hadn't been defeated, then that leaves such an enormous kind of um, gap in a way. Uh, although I should say defeated, I would say rather the, the Napoleonic Wars have to be resolved in some way. I'll, I'll backpedal a little bit. In fact, Patrick O'Brien in his series ran into this problem where he used up the years of the Napoleonic Wars. And at one point, he sort of backfilled a little bit uh, he, he spent a little more time within one year than they realistically could have spent. The, you know, there were more events in, I think, 1814 and 1815 than, than really could have happened. Eventually, you know, Napoleon had been defeated. Napoleon had escaped. Napoleon had been defeated again. And, and he was done with Napoleon. There was nothing more to, to be done. But fortunately for me, because I'm writing uh, speculative fiction, I can change the, the course of historical events. And in fact, I had started doing that in Black Powder War, which is the first place where I really kind of jumped off the established history of the Napoleonic Wars. The historical battles of the historical campaign of 1806 against the Prussians and, and the Russians has gone very differently in my universe than it did in reality. Napoleon has done much better in my universe. Uh-oh. Yes. Yes, Napoleon, Napoleon has done very well for himself um, in, in Black Powder War, much better than he did uh, historically. And, of course, that's 
I, I think that's a lot a lot of fun because again it's it's finding the worst things that I can do to my characters. And of course the the worst things are for England the more the more Lawrence's is Lawrence's life is complicated. And of course the more the more intense that struggle of his between his duty to serve his country, which as it becomes more and more beleaguered, demands more and more of his attention and and his dragon. Well, Naomi Novik, we'll look forward to you to continue to do your worst <laughs> to your characters. <laughs> Thank and you. And we'll look forward to more of your books. We've been speaking with Naomi Novik. Her new novels are His Majesty's Dragon, Throne of Jade, and The Black Powder War. Thank you for joining us, Naomi. Thank you. It's been great. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.